0: Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast. I am Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we are all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing, and assistance to each other. I aim to have conversations to expand your consciousness help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matter, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by Finnish fusion artist Axel Teslev, and this song is called Reincarnation. My guest today is filmmaker and author, Lionel Friedberg. Originally from South Africa, Lionel spoke with me from his home in Los Angeles. Lionel's career in the film industry began in 1961 South Africa, and it has been nothing but remarkable, including winning awards such as the Emmy, the Columbus Film Festival Award, and an American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Westinghouse Award. And beyond professional accomplishments, Lionel's work has taken him to the most remarkable places on this planet. The focus of our conversation is Lionel's autobiography called Forever in My Veins, how film led me to the mysterious world of the African shaman. Lionel's life has been incredibly rich and adventurous. It has included many remarkable experiences of African spirituality, including an early prophecy about key events in Lionel's life which one by one have come true. Lionel is a compelling storyteller, and in this interview takes us from remote bush locations to prestigious research institutions, sharing many experiences and understandings of consciousness, memory, race and racism, and even his most painful experiences are surrounded by a sense of magic in the world. The narrative of both his book and our conversation is loosely structured around a prophecy he received in his early 20s and has been witnessing unfolding throughout the years and his many adventures. Lionel's enthusiasm for life is contagious and I hope our conversation leaves you with a sense of awe for the world we live in. Lionel, thank you for... um Coming on to talk to me about your absolutely remarkable life story.
1: Well, I, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Just to give uh, people a sense of, um, uh, you know, the, the the book is covers such a, a vast array of. Uh, Experiences in your world of filmmaking, in your travels around, uh, you know, parts of Africa, but many other parts of, of the world. Um, and there are there would be things in there for people with all kinds of interests. You know, the history of South Africa, filmmaking, and so on. So today, I really like to focus on a couple of things, which are, are some of your profound spiritual experiences and your fascinating insights into the issues of race. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I was curious about uh, reading your book, because there's so much detailed accounts of, uh, you know, it's very vivid when you meet people, when you talk about historic events, you describe people's attires and, um, you know, a lot of detail. And I was curious whether you have a remarkable memory or whether there was quite a bit of research involved in preparing this book and going back over old photography and film footage
1: and so on. Yeah. Um, Many people have asked the same question and being a documentary filmmaker, I have a habit of keeping notes about everything and I keep copious notes about everything. And I've been doing that uh, ever since you know I began my career, in fact, uh, even when I, as a child, I used to write down everything. I used to keep a diary right. and uh, my habit is you know at the end of the day, uh, no matter how tired one is or wherever one has been, uh, no matter how amazing the day has been, I always find time to keep notes of every single thing, and they have come in i always thought i 'm carrying these boxes of information around. What am I ever going to do with them? And then when I started to write this book, I I said, thank goodness I did that because I have access to all of those notes and I have access to my scripts and I have access to my um, production notes. And, 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 you know, I did take many photographs as well, but when you're behind a movie camera, you haven't got any time to take still images. So that was always a little frustrating for me, although I did manage to get some Uh, stalls during the course of my travels but i i I have all of these notes and i do have a very 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 good memory um people have often remarked on that i can i can recall i'm i'm really bad with names (laughs) but but i can remember events and people and places vividly um and the other thing is that i have the most extraordinarily Vivid dreams. It's almost as though I'm living in another world at night. And I, I kind of when I get, even if I take a, a brief nap in the afternoon, I know I'm going to have a. I'm going to go to another world. It's it's that it's that real. It's in Technicolor and it's in Panavision, and it's in stereophonic sound and it is absolutely real. I'm very blessed as far as that's concerned. So you know, I have this recall capability, and I'm very grateful for that
0: yeah yeah i mean that's immediately when you talk about um keeping daily notes that there are there are two uh remarkable people that i i know of one is an anthropologist here in australia who's now dead but he was famous for doing exactly that every day taking notes and it's become a, a, a resource for now the generations of anthropologists you know following him and another yes. was my um one of the people I studied with around consciousness um, who also yeah. have a daily practice of, of writing things mm-hmm. down, it really seems to create a, mm. just give you a record, but it also probably helps you hone your memory because every day you're going over your day and, and,
1: and remembering things. Yes. And I try to make a habit before I fall asleep at night, um, to process the day and to go over everything very, very carefully. No matter how insignificant it may have been, you know, and I I try to, and then compartmentalize everything. And then the other thing is in in the morning after I wake up and sometimes you you wake up at the crack of dawn to go on a movie shoot or whatever it is, I always get up a half hour earlier than that and just lie there and process what has happened in the night. What do I need to recall? Is there anything that's been in my subconscious that I need to process and put into the conscious side of my mind? That I might want to refer back on because maybe it 's a memory of something that I would normally not recall, you know, so I think it 's a good habit for people to be able to do that. you just shift it from the subconscious into an area where it 's accessible um, and then, as I say you know I just write things down and fortunately now today we can very easily record things on phones or everybody you know walks around with one of these yeah. and it 's a wonderful event, a little gadget to just talk um, um you know memories into and notes to yourself
0: yeah yeah look i mean every morning first thing i do um is to use one of those one of those phones and write in the notes app <laughs> right, my dreams that i remember you um, do that yeah so do you write, your, while, do
1: you write them down as well <laughs> I stopped because it was just too much. Too much I couldn't yeah. keep pace with it. It was too much, you know? I was filling up screeds of you know, notebooks and I thought, okay, enough. I, I can't make sense out of a lot of it. Yes. And so what is the point? And unless it's something really extraordinary, I know I stopped writing it down. But for a long, long time, I used to write my dreams down. And uh, a number of, of shamans told me, they said you, they've said to me, you have this capability. You are able to access other realms. Um, We can see that, you know, and I'm talking about the African shamans who they go by the name of Sangomas, particularly in South Africa. Uh, They call themselves by different terms in other parts of Africa, but in in South Africa, they call themselves Sangomas. And they, 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 they said, we can see in your bones. In other words, your ancestors are telling us that you have this capability of traveling to other realms. You should write everything down. So for a long time, I did that, but it was just overwhelming. There was just too much of it. I was filling up notebooks. There was no room to keep them.
0: Mm. And did you have a, uh, what is your paradigm around these? You know, what is your understanding? Do you interpret dreams? You talked about it being subconscious, bringing things from the subconscious to the conscious. Do you sort of take the, the African perspective that you're traveling in other dimensions and maybe meeting the ancestors? Um, how, do you, how do you interpret the experiences?
1: I think it's all of that um, and, and more. And a lot of it I really don't understand. And the, the thing about them also, my dreams are extraordinarily detailed, very, very vivid. I can recall colors, smells of places I go to, no matter how strange or weird they may be, standing on some blue cliffside in some weird world that I don't even begin to understand. And yet I wake up with the smell of the ambience of the place um, and the sounds that were around me. So maybe I'm traveling on an astral level. Who knows? I think all of this is possible. You know, I'm open to all of this. I, I don't like using the word believe, uh, because that is like th- throwing oneself at some sort of faith without any proof, without any substance to it. Um, I need to have some, Proof that you know, um, I need to rationalize it and understand it and find some basis of truth before I accept anything. So, belief is one thing, but um, being open minded about uh, so many things in life, I think, is absolutely critical. And I do try to remain open minded, I'm open to the possibility of anything being possible. And I think the universe and the cosmos, this amazing cosmos in which we live, and we're just a tiny little dot. In that you know is an extraordinarily complex and amazing place, and who knows? Perhaps we have the capability of going to places um, in our just our consciousness, although the body may remain in bed, you know, warmly snuggled up. And I've also seen too many examples in my work making films. Like for example, I once made a film for a, a cable company here in the nineties. I don't remember which one it was. it was. It might have been the A&E, which is the Arts and Entertainment Network or the History Channel. And the title of the show was Beyond Death. And the brief was, what happens to the, one's consciousness after the demise of the physical body? Let's, let's go and do an examination. Go and talk to people who've had near-death experiences. Go and talk to you know, people out there who've done serious scientific research into that field. And so it was a two-hour special that dealt with that, that topic. What is your consciousness? Is your consciousness your soul, your spirit, or is it purely synapses firing in the brain rooted in tissue, or is it more than that? What is it, and what happens to it when the body dies? So I met some really amazing people, including a, a man by the name of Robert John, J-A-H-N, at Princeton University. Who ran a research unit called the Pair Unit, the which stood oh, for yes. Princeton. You've heard about that? Yeah. The Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Unit. Now, Princeton never made a big fuss about this because Princeton is an Ivy League university. It has a reputation to maintain. And if they were telling the world that they're investigating whether consciousness is an energy form, people would have laughed at them. So they kept it very quiet. But Robert John in the engineering division at Princeton University had this amazing research complex uh, in the basement of the building where they did research into what consciousness may be. Is it an energy? Can consciousness influence physical objects? Can you make an object move purely by thinking about it? And time and time again, over a period of 25 years, they proved, Robert John and his associate Brenda Dunn, Robert John unfortunately has passed away, but Brenda Dunn is still around and she still writes, and she writes quite copiously and runs an organization that still investigates this topic, that they had people influencing and impacting random number generators, little water fountains, little toy cars on a tabletop, making them turn in various directions purely by thinking about it. And the person did not even have to be in the same room as these objects. They could be in the same building or in another city or even in another continent. I know that uh, because i did an extensive interview with um with with robert john and they had three people in australia uh they had a certain they had a time set where the experiment would start either to influence little toy cars on a tabletop or the swing of a pendulum uh or the the height of a fountain or this random number generator and the uh, i forget what they what they called their, their 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 participants uh in other subjects or uh whatever they refer to them forgive me but i don't remember what they were but what these people were told right we'll start the experiment at this particular time and what we want you to do is to influence the random number generator as an example to come up with more nines than any other uh, digits and these are these are you know digital things that just spin
0: yeah Yeah.
1: and about 60 to 70 percent of their experiments proved that they could do this over a period of you know a quarter of a century it's amazing. And at the end of it, he said, you know, <clears throat> I'm an engineer. I used to work for NASA and I, you know, I'm a rocket engineer. I, 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 you know, designed rocket engines and I'm, you know, I, I, I deal with nuts and bolts. I deal with steel. I build, you know, bridges and things and I don't live in an airy fairy world, but I'm utterly convinced I now know that consciousness is an energy that exists outside of the body. It's, it's, it, 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 it's part of who you are. But when your body no longer exists and your physical being ceases to be, that consciousness doesn't vanish into thin air. It's still around. Or you can use it outside of your physical self. And it was just amazing. There's another uh, remarkable institute in Virginia called the Monroe Institute, Yeah, which uh, I'm quite sure you come from the field of anthropology. You may well have heard about their work, which is really quite remarkable. And... um,
0: we had, um, I've had one of my guests uh, was a, a man by the name of Mark Serto, who um, used to be an engineer at the Monroe Institute uh, when Bob Monroe yes. was
1: still alive. Okay, yeah. Yep. So you, you know what I'm talking about. People go there, and, and mostly the people who go to the Monroe Institute are people from the business world who need to unwind. They are you know, burnt out or they're tense or whatever else. And uh, you know, they, they need to find a way of relaxing and a way of just you know, f- finding themselves again before they go back into the craziness of the, of the business world or whatever it is. And the Monroe Institute um, helps them to do that by slowly raising their consciousness level and allowing them to relax. And they have these rather extraordinary uh, devices. It's like a, like a, a tank. Uh, you lie in this, in this, in this, in this, in this tank like device uh, and it's dark inside and they give you headphones and they, they pipe a signal, a, a different uh, audio signal to one ear compared to this ear. binary uh, right? They call them. Vinyl, precisely, precisely that. And it allows these, these, allows these people to, to learn, to relax, being in a still conscious and awake, but uh, allows them to relax and, you know, so sort of float into another another dimension to learn to just deal with stress and did, did you have you the been sub- there lionel did you do that yes track? i i filmed there yeah i filmed, oh, you filmed there. there yeah yeah um and, and and i won't mention names but there was one particular guy that uh, who went there many many times um he's retired now but he used to be with nasa uh, and uh he was also a rocket engineer and he said you know I've been going there for the last decade or more. I made the show probably around about 1997 or 98. And right. he told me at that time that he'd been going there for about 10 years. And he said, you know, something amazing happened to me one particular. And he said, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer. I don't believe in anything. If you can't pick up a pencil and say that's real and, you know, it's got – molecules and atoms and if i can't touch it and feel it it doesn't exist that's who i am i come from that world i'm trained to think that way and yet what i found when i was being subjected to this binaural signal and i was my consciousness was raising uh, over a period of years i found myself traveling outside of my body and i was fully aware of what was going on and he said to me he said no, don't laugh at me he said uh i have met my grandfather who passed away when he was a child i have met his ancestors i have been to them all sorts of other places in the in the cosmos during my journey and seen things that if i try to describe them to people they'll lock me up because they'll think i'm nuts but i've done it and and it's it's by raising one's consciousness that i've been able to do this and he said it's as real. As that road that you've just taken there to get to this place—that's how I travel through the cosmos, through the, to different realms and different different levels of, of of the universe. And you know, there was no nonsense about it. He wasn't lying. Um, and uh, and you know, so that was only t- examples from two scientific institutions. But I've discovered this or encountered similar stories in tribal areas. Yeah, and I'll give you an example. You know, the the sun. Bushmen, who are the last of the Stone Age people of Africa, who live in, in areas primarily now in Botswana, in the Kalahari Desert. They're nomadic people. They travel from place to place every day. They may live in one place for a couple of days and then move on. Uh, and they live off their environment, you know, essentially hunter-gatherers. And at night, they do what they call a trance dance. Now, that's not the word they use. We use that. But what it is, is they the men dance around a fire the women beat these drums very rhythmically and the men go into a trance as they circle a fire and they go into another state of consciousness and what they're doing basically is remote viewing they will see where the game or the wildlife is for the next day for the hunt where they will find the the prey the next day or where the next river will be where they can fill their little calabashes of water where they could do that you know and this is remote viewing again this is consciousness leaving the physical body so even in stone age societies and even in noble and wonderful scientific establishments like 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 princeton university you know i've encountered this so it's 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 a, it's, it's it, it is so we are not locked in a physical uh, um, um being we are more than that our consciousness can exist outside of our physical selves and it does have a capability of roaming maybe the entire universe and even influencing physical objects yeah. so do do we understand it probably not it's going to take a long time before we can find the how and the where and the why but it happens
0: well and you have um you, you know your book is loosely structured around this prediction, which also suggests the ability of consciousness to, to go beyond time, right. To transcend time. So maybe you could explain that sort of layout that, that original prediction that you got as quite a young man, uh, when you yeah. first went and saw the sangoma. <coughs> um, I,
1: I'll certainly do that. And in order to, to, to give your viewers or listeners a little bit of, uh, um, an idea of where it came from, um, my parents eventually left South Africa. I grew up in South Africa. I grew up in the apartheid society in South Africa. I had my education there I, oh, right up until uh, um, the end of my high school days. I lived in South Africa. And eventually my parents, I was a lonely child. My parents moved away. They moved out of South Africa primarily because of apartheid. And I'm talking about 1959, 1960. Um, my father took a job. He was a watchmaker originally. He was from Latvia. He emigrated to what is today Namibia to – at the time when he emigrated to to German Southwest Africa, which is today uh, Namibia. Uh, And for a long time, that territory, by the way, was very controversial because it was under the control of South Africa. It was a mandated territory under South Africa. And South Africa wouldn't give up its control of of Southwest Africa until independence finally arrived in the 90s. Anyway, that's another story. So my father emigrated there and um, eventually left South Africa. And I went with them to this little tiny... Copper mining town in in the bush in in what was known as Northern Rhodesia at that time. Northern Rhodesia was a British colony sitting just to the south of the Congo border, right on the Congo border, and uh, it was the beginning of the unrest in the Congo. The Congo had been given its independence by Belgium, and. Uh, chaos prevailed. Uh, The Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba was assassinated and it was absolutely chaotic, but on this side of the fence, everything was cool and fine and dandy and very quiet because it was British. And uh, the copper mining industry was alive and well at those days. And there was a string of towns all had copper mines and that's where my father went. And so I followed them up there. And what I really wanted to do with my life was to become a filmmaker. And I'd been making films ever since I was a child. I got my first little movie camera. This is long before the days of video, of course. you nice. still used film. Yeah. It was 8 millimeter, And, you know, so I made films about my friend's birthday parties and sporting events at school and whatever else. But my dream was always to go to Hollywood and make big movies, you know, big adventure films. And I thought when they went up there, it sounded like, ah, this is my opportunity. This is adventure time. When I go there with them, you know, I'll be able to make my own version of King Solomon's Mines and the African Queen and all the Tarzan movies that I loved as a kid. Now's my chance, you know. Uh, but of course, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, there was nothing there except a copper mine. And I thought, when I arrived there, I thought, what on earth am I going to do with my life? So my mother said, go back to South Africa, go and get a degree, go and do something with your life. And I said, no. Let me, you know, let me let me hang around a little longer. And then one morning in the local newspaper, there was a newspaper that served all these mining towns called the Northern News. There was a little ad in there for staff for what was, they said, a new television station was opening. And I thought, oh my Lord, this is like manna from heaven. My prayers have been answered. A television station? Yeah. You know, that's for me. And of course uh, I went and knocked on the door they were still building the place. They gave me a, a job, not a very, uh, you know, responsible one it was in the props room, taking care of props. But uh, it didn't take me long uh, after I got the job uh, that I became a cameraman in the studio. And uh, I, I got that job and it changed my life because that was the beginning of my career, the very first television station in Central Africa. And it was extraordinary times because the British Empire was coming apart. Britain was giving all its colonies away. And Northern Rhodesia was slated for independence. It was going to become the Republic of Zambia. So I worked at the station and in and out, you know, people were coming in, politicians from London and Whitehall and Washington and local uh, uh, indigenous black uh, uh, Political figures discussing the impending independence of the, of the country it was ex- exciting times amazing times and we 'd have tribal live tribal shows with drums going in the studio and at night there'll be Western entertainment with shows from the BBC and from from America you know on film and you so I lived in this multi-dimensional world mm. um, and then one day after about three years we all got pink slips but well, we didn 't have a large staff maybe thirty people we all got pink slips to say sorry thank you very much. The station has been nationalized because independence is coming. The country will very soon become the Republic of Zambia. And the Zambian government has decided to take over the the television station. And what they want to do is to staff it now with local Zambian people, indigenous people. Well, that was understandable. This was their territory. This was their future. This was, you know, historically their world before the British arrived and took it away and stuck the Union Jack there. Now it was their time. And we sort of all were very, very shocked by that. But at the same time, we understood the reasoning behind it. But for me, it was kind of traumatic. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And so we had six months before we were told to leave.
0: And when you're young, it's so it seems like such an overwhelming decision, doesn't it? When you say that, it reminds me of being in my early 20s and having this, this question, what am I going to do with my life? You know, it seems
1: like... Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's scary. It's very, very scary. Particularly when you're stuck in a sea of bush, there's nothing around you, except jungle and bush, you know, where am I going to go? I didn't necessarily, I didn't want to go back to South Africa because of the apartheid situation. Although South Africa had a a fairly good film industry, alive and well, Um, so that was an option. I could have gone back there, Uh, but I didn't really want to do that. My dream was always to come to where I live now, which is Los Angeles and work in the film industry here in Hollywood. Either that or, or London. Um, so I wasn't sure what to do. Anyway, we had a very wonderful guy who worked for us—a uh, um, a Bemba, a, a member of the Bemba tribe—who wasn't much older than I was at the time. I think I was 22, and David Firi was his name. He maybe he was probably in his mid-20s. He was our servant. Every white household those days, you know had a servant. We were privileged whites and we all had servants. And David was our servant. He mowed the lawn, he cleaned you know, washed the dishes. He did some of the cooking, but he and I were great buddies. We were very friendly with one another. And, um, you know, I remember I used to come home very late at night from the station after I, after the station had closed down. And, and early in the morning, you know, David and I, we sort of had breakfast together and I'd spent time with him before I drove back to the station. So he and I got to know each other quite well. And I went back and I said, David, you know, horrible things happened. I've been asked, I've been told to leave the station and I don't know what to do. You know, um, what do you think I should do? Should I go back to South Africa? And of course, he knew that South Africa had the apartheid system, which was entrenched and enshrined by law, that the twain never met between white and black. It wasn't nearly as bad as that in northern Rhodesia, even though racism was alive and well in all of those white-controlled British territories, but not like South Africa, where it was law that you could not meet and you had to have separate entrances and you know, separate beaches and separate banks and separate churches. Everything was sliced no. right down the middle. It was yeah. awful. I didn't want to go back to that. And so David said, well, I'll I'll try and find someone who can help you. And um, I said, like what? Like who? And he said, I I think I know someone. And a couple of days later, he said, I think I found someone who who may be able to help you with your decision as to what you should do. So comes the day of the the appointed time, he and I went trundling through the bush in my little secondhand car, um, driving out of town into into the boondocks. And uh, went to this little settlement and there was this little hut on the side. And he said, I think this is the place. This is the place. Stop outside. We stopped outside. like there was a, a closed door and he knocked on the door. And this very, very old lady opened the door and they spoke Bemba with one another. She, she spoke no English at all. One of the interesting things about her, which I, I'll never forget is that she had, she was an albino, although she was, um, a bemba, a black person, she had you know a, a, a pigment problem with her skin, so her skin was more white than than black, which sometimes happens um, and some of those people are treated pretty badly in some areas in south africa they they regard them as freaks, but that 's another story, nevertheless, she invited us into her little hut. there were a couple of rooms inside, and um in the middle of the room was a, a there were no there was no furniture, nothing around there, but lots of shelves with little containers, uh, bottles and jars and whatever else containing sticks and herbs and some animal skins and all sorts of things that I didn't quite identify and know what they were. But she said, she told us to sit down at this little grass um, mat in the middle of the room on the floor, on the cold floor, um, although it was a piping hot day outside and she was wearing a a rug and a heavy trench coat. It was very strange, uh, almost surreal. And, I had seen something like this as a child, because once one of my nannies in South Africa took me to see one of her friends, when we were living in a small town just to the east of Johannesburg, a place called Kempton Park, which is where the big airport is now. Um, it was her day off, and she said, do I want to come with her to visit her friend? And I said, yes, and she took me down to meet her friend. And when we went into her friend's room at the back of the house where she worked as a servant she had a little grass mat on her floor and she had little shelves with little trinkets and things around and she said to me that she works as a doctor and i you know i was about seven years old and i said you know like what kind of doctor she said ah i can mix all these things and i can help make people better but I can also help them with their problems. And if they have problems about life and they want to talk to their ancestors, I can help them to do that. And I said, how do you do that? And she said, I use this. And she took up this little bag and there was a little skin bag. And inside it, she shook it. You know, I could hear this cluttering and she turned it upside down on the grass mat and there were bones and stones and little trinkets in there, little pebbles. And she said, these things, they allow me to speak to the ancestors and to tell me what my patient Needs to know. So I was introduced to that concept as a child, but I was nothing was explained. I didn't understand it, but you know I had witnessed this. So when I entered this a little hut in 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 northern Rhodesia with David and this woman, uh, had this grass mat and this bag. I thought, oh, she has to be something similar to that woman that I had met as a child way way back when I was a kid. You know, she must be some sort of herbalist or diviner or whatever it is that they do. And um, to cut a very long story short, what she did is she told me to blow into the bag, which I did to say my name. And then she took some snuff, which is ground up tobacco, and s- sprinkled it into the bag and turned the bag upside down and out fell all these bones. Now, the, I must tell uh, the, your listeners and your viewers that the bones consist primarily of wild animals. hyena uh, bone um a there is a lion bone there's a little piece of a crocodile in there uh yes. there's an antelope in there but they're, also they're little, little goat- right they're little they're not like big bones yeah, no 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 t- tiny small things nothing 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 bigger than you know than than the the half the, half the size of my pen small yeah. small pieces like knuckle bones if you like or yeah. finger bones small small pieces um and do you
0: think do you think you're asked to blow into it as a way of connecting with it so that's your your i'm
1: sure that must be what what it's about because every time i've ever seen one of these people they've always told me to do that blow into the bag say your name and it's as though the i think the paradigm for them is that i'm identifying myself to the bones, which allows the bones then to connect with my ancestral spirits. I think that's the idea behind it. Yeah, and then they turn the bones upside. And I've had this done dozens of times, and I've filmed it many, many times happening to other people. So I think that's what really is going on. And then you know, she she threw the threw the bones down, and the first thing she did was she she knelt over the bones and she she clapped her hands like this and she covered her eyes, and she said to David, "I can't see." I can't see anything. What are all these bright lights in my eyes? And David, uh, and I, David looked at me, you know, almost in horror, and, uh, she, and he said to me, she wants to know what all the lights are that are blinding her. Well, I said to her, I, I said to him, I'm not sure, but I, I kind of thought afterwards, what she had seen probably were the lights in the television station, in the studio. She had seen into my world. She she was blinded by these lights. Because and there's a lot of
0: really high powered lights, right? That get used for the yeah, space.
1: yeah. You have these huge, you know, what we used to call them pantographs, and we used to call them uh, scoops. These big lights, and you know, you just flood the studio with light. No, nothing artistic about it. Just illuminate the place, you know. Yeah. And uh, and 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 so she was kind of blinded. She rubbed her eyes like this, and she said, "Oh," and then she started to give this reading. And David says your ancestors are now speaking to her. And she told me a lot of things which were almost un- unforgettable. She, 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 it, she, her, her interpretation was so fast, it was just coming out in chunks of information. And David was trying his best to keep pace with her and interpreting for me what she was saying. I had tried to keep some notes. Well, I kept some of the notes, but most of the notes went straight into my head because there was just too much of it. But, you know, she said things like, for example, the very first thing she said to David, one of the very first things she said to him was, you tell him he is going to go over the big water. And these were her words. Now, Zambia or Northern Rhodesia at the time, remember, is a landlocked country sitting in the middle of Central Africa. There's no ocean there. But she described, she said, it's a big water. He will go over the big water, and then she pointed in the northern direction over her shoulder like this. She said, "And he will go over in that direction." And the woman, when I was, she was old. Her eyes were not, you know, she couldn't really see terribly well. But she, she was seeing more than I could possibly even imagine. Um, and she said, "He will go over that direction, over the the big water, and he will go to more lights." And he will work in that place. And he will work with a lot of people who are very famous. I had no idea what she meant. <laughs> Another thing that she said to him was, but he must be very careful of the big water because the big water will try to kill him. Now I'm hearing all this, not knowing what on earth she's referring to, but I'm taking it all in like a sponge Yeah because it was absolutely fascinating. She was telling me as though she was reading a book, and that's you know how convinced she was of what she was saying to me. She said, and he must be very careful, because one day, the day will come where he will be in the bush, and the great beast, there is a great beast, and that great beast will almost kill him. He must be very careful. I hear this and I think, oh my God, what are we talking about? You know, Are we talking about some sort of sci-fi, situation you know alien attack what what is she talking about um she said to him uh, another thing that she said which i'll never forget was oh and he's going to go to a world there's a world a place a big world it's only white there is no color in that world no color only white he will go there and you know she kept on saying all these amazing things um i made notes of them and one of them one of the more interesting things she told him was you tell him that one day, and she, she put up her hand like this. I put her, two, her forefinger and her middle finger together like this. He will meet a man who was very close friends. And she did this as a signal, which is what they often use, the, the tribal people, when you're very close to Place somebody. someone. You know, you, yeah, yeah you, 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 you know, you've got a tight relationship. Yeah. He will meet a man who, who knew very well one of the most evil people who ever lived. Wow what's that about yeah what on earth is she talking about right so i'm making notes of at all that, of the stuff at that and stage
0: I'm, you're 22 it, you probably can't even picture yourself even though you've been dreaming about a, being becoming a filmmaker you you probably can't even picture yourself leaving
1: no idea that part I, no. of the world exactly i had no idea nevertheless at the end of the session which probably lasted a couple of hours and at the end of it by the way she just she got up and she went like this. And she said thank you to the ancestors by clapping her hands. You normally do this in the African tradition. You do this. So that's a sign of thank you to the ancestors. And she got up and left the room, and that was it. I had no idea. There were no time for questions, no time for her to expand on anything, nothing at all. <laughs> we got in my car, went back home, and here I was, you know, drunk with all of this, 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 de- this information, this detail, not knowing what on earth had happened. Well, anyway. I'm going to just jump ahead a little bit and to yes. tell your viewers how some of these things really did come true. In fact, they all came true.
0: And the thing the thing that I just want to add, as you or, you know, sort of say anticipation, is that often I think with predictions, people that are skeptical about about predictions can say that, well, afterwards you can make things fit, you know, certain you can, you can, circumstances. You can make them fit. That might sometimes be the case, but in this case, yeah. I think there's such a remarkable... Number and such a remarkable detail that that is a very a very uh, implausible explanation.
1: Absolutely, this this isn't like the Cinderella story. You know, you make the glass slipper fit the the foot kind of thing. You know, yeah. with the ugly sisters. It's it wasn't like that at all. Because as my life unfolded, and as my career developed, and events happened, it, it, it often hit me like a ton of bricks after the event had happened. That, my God, this fits perfectly. Mm-hmm. Of what that old woman had told me, and the very first uh, time, the first thing that happened, one of those predictions that she gave me, when I realised uh, what she may have been talking about, was I, I did go back to South Africa because I had no alternative, and I became, uh, I joined a large film studio in Johannesburg and worked in the film industry, but my my dream was always to go to North America, and um, the, the United States w- was. Closed to white South Africans because of its anti-apartheid policies. We're talking about the '60s. It was very difficult to get a visa. Which
0: is which is at- kind of ironic, right? I think you point that out in your book. There's a certain irony to that because racism was still uh, rife in the U.S. as you discovered.
1: Uh, racism was alive and well here, and as and as I do write in the book, there's a there's a whole chapter about. Uh, I interviewed uh, a man who had a museum in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, uh, who survived a lynching in the deep south. And you know, when I made that film, it was called Vigilantes. It was a history of vigilantism in America. And when I researched and did that film, I was absolutely appalled because the degree of violence and racism that existed in this country, in here, in the United States was worse than it ever was in South Africa with these lynchings where people would go on a Sunday and have a picnic while they lynched people and hung them up from trees you know, in the, in, in little towns in the deep South, nothing like that ever happened in South Africa. Yes. Everything was divided. We were not allowed to have contact with one another. You couldn't mix, you couldn't marry one another or anything like that. If, if, uh, if you, if you, uh, if you were found in bed, a white and black person, you would straight, it's a crime. You'd go to jail, but we never murdered and burnt and did the sort of things that that went on in this country. You did so
0: something that did shock me. And you mentioned that just in passing, I think you talk about there having been a, a system where there was people could get a license to shoot Bushmen. Um,
1: that was in uh, German Southwest Africa. That, right. that was that, that yes, it was basically genocide against the local people. Um, when that was before, that was before world war two when Southwest Africa was under German control, Deutsche Südwestafrika, it was called uh-huh. at the time. Uh, and people would go out and they were actually shooting the local population. And it was you you'd get a license to do that. After World War II, um, and, and when, when Germany was defeated by Britain and her allies, and, and South Africa was an ally of Britain, uh, Southwest Africa was given to South Africa as a mandated territory to basically just take care of until it could be given its own independence. Um, So it was no longer a German territory. It became a South African mandated territory under the care of South Africa. basically South Africa, you know, basically decided to own it because of diamonds and, and its wealth and gold and, you know, it's all the mineral wealth that exists there. Um, yeah that sort of thing did exist, but but not not in South Africa, and certainly not the way it happened here and I was so shocked when I first came to North America to actually see racism being alive and well as it was, even when the rest of the world was pointing its fingers at south Africa and saying listen you 're you're, you're being very naughty, stop doing this and and start you know um, uh, allowing your your, your your black neighbors to participate in government and just be a little more humane towards your black neighbors. But, you know, racism was alive and well here. The difference was that it was not enshrined in the statute books. It was not law. You did not have to do that. It just happened to be the way people behave. And when you look at... I'm sorry to say it, but this is January 2021 now. You and I are talking to one another, and you know, you find that that a lot of this still pervades to this day, with yeah. the white supremacist idea, as what happened a week ago in Washington D.C. with the taking over of the Capitol. You know, white supremacy is still a huge problem in this country. It's it's terribly sad. But let's get back to um, her predictions of this old lady and. I worked in the film industry in South Africa for some time and then I managed to get, I couldn't go to the States because they wouldn't give me a visa. But the Canadians were amazing and very helpful and very kind and very generous. And uh, just a couple of weeks after I applied to the Canadian embassy for a visa to emigrate to Canada, I got a visa. And um, so I emigrated to Canada and... The, the the way to go those days I'm talking about 1966 you know you you didn't fly very few people did those days so you went by sea you went by passenger liner so I travelled by by ocean liner wonderful ship called the S A Vol um, going from Cape Town to Southampton and south from Southampton I was going to take the train to Liverpool and from there I was going to take another ship to Montreal. Um, a friend of mine, who I worked with in the film industry in Johannesburg, was going to meet me in London, and I was going to stay with him for a week, and I was looking very forward to that. And you know, so the trip to 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 the UK from South Africa those days was what we used to call it the mail ship because they carried the royal mail from the UK to South Africa, and the reverse, you know, carried fresh fruit and vegetables and whatever else from South Africa to the UK. And um, the, the, uh, uh, it was a very very wonderful service weekly service one ship in one ship out and uh the ship i was on was one of their latest uh the latest ship in the fleet and um i went up on deck every night i used to go up to the top deck and i used to look out and i used to marvel at the sky because it was just extraordinary there won't there was no ambient light whatsoever and when you look up at the heavens it was just like being in a planetarium it was wonderful and um, one night I was up there and there was a bit of a breeze and um, I used to look back to the stern of the ship and you would know it in, in, in Australia, the Southern Cross, you could see the Southern Cross in the sky. Yeah. And every night the Southern Cross was getting lower and lower and lower and lower and eventually was you know, g- g- beginning to hide behind the horizon. And I suddenly realized halfway through this, this voyage, my God, I'm going from one hemisphere, from the Southern Hemisphere, to the north, I can actually physically feel that. I can see it in the stars. You know, the sky is changing. I'm going from the no- south of the wo- of the planet to the north, and it like it was an amazing uh, a thought to suddenly you know nurture that, that this was really happening to me. And then I thought, yeah, and this is one of the greatest oceans in the world. This is the Atlantic, and here I am traveling from north to south, from south to north. And then suddenly hit me like a bolt out of lightning. She told me that. She said, he will cross the big water from here to the north. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And that's the first time I realized that some of the things that this old woman had told me may well be true, may well, you know, be real. That was the first incident. And then anyway, I came to North America. I worked in Canada and, spent a little bit of time in Hollywood. My father was not well in Africa. As I said, I was an only child. My mother was there. So I felt time to go back, you know, make sure that she's okay. So I eventually ended up, uh, I brought her and my father back from Zambia to live in South Africa where he could have proper medical attention and care. And I stayed in South Africa, got married and whatever else, and my career began to take off in South Africa. So I stayed there and my my and then began to nurture my career um in the film industry in south africa and um so um many many other events happened but i'd like to talk about one of the other predictions of this old lady in 1967 um i get a phone call from a swedish producer uh who had lots of clients all over the world and he said um i just had a a telegram from uh from from the us there's a guy who's coming out on safari hunting safari shooting, you know, big game shooting. Um, he's going to Mozambique and he's got two friends with him, three of them from America, and they want someone to do a coverage on film of the safari. Are you interested?
0: Like a, like a private documentary, basically, wasn't it? I was advertising yeah. used for their, for their,
1: uh, toy. He country, wanted to use it. it? He, that's exactly right. <laughs> he, he had uh, airtime on a local station here in LA. Correct. And so he wanted to use this as one of the shows, you know, to promote his toys. He was the head of a big <laughs> Just remembering
0: company. the hula hooping giraffes and similar things that they were hoping <laughs> <Yeah>. for.
1: <laughs> exactly. Now, this guy had made a fortune out of the hula hoop. Uh, you know, the hula hoop was a craze that took the world by storm. Even I had one as a child. And he also made a fortune out of the frisbee. So, you know, he's an extremely wealthy guy. And so it's time for them to go shooting wild animals in Africa. Now, I have never understood why people get any kicks out of shooting wild animals. I just don't understand it. And even those days, it made no sense to me at all. What is the fun of doing that? Where is the sport? And and, and, what do they get out of it? So I said to Sven, who was the Swedish guy who called me, I said, okay, Sven, I'll take the job, but only because I'm really curious to go and see why these people do what they do. Yeah, I'll, I'll go and cover their safari. Sure, I'll take the job, you know. Um, and it was really out of curiosity. Uh, I just wanted to find out what one of these big, expensive, well-equipped, big-game hunting safaris was all, was all about and where the fun was in shooting giraffes and wildebeest and zebras, you know, why on earth would one get a kick out of that? I just didn't understand it. I still don't to this day. Uh, and anyway, so I met these guys in in, in a city called Baira, which is right up in the north of Mozambique. And then we uh, eventually went into the hunting concession, which was right in the middle of the country. And Mozambique at that time was beautiful, pristine, really amazing geography. The bush uh, was amazing. The wild animal life was prolific everywhere. And uh, they had a consist. they had a license, each of these three uh, guys, these three Americans, to shoot a certain number of animals. And w- one of the animals that they had a license to shoot was an elephant. Each of them could shoot an elephant. And uh, so uh, on this particular day, we were pursuing a herd of elephants because one of the guys had not shot his elephant yet. And he was insistent, he's got to get that elephant. Now we had two white leaders, you know, l- local guys. Um, yeah. Uh, as as the leader of the safari, plus a big truck truck behind us to pick up the, the spoils of the hunt, you know, and take it back to camp, so that the trophies could be shipped back to the states. And um, we pursued this herd of elephants, and uh, as much as we tried to catch up with them, they just kept out of they just kept kept ahead of us all the time. And at the end of the day, Wally, who was one of the white hunters, said, "You know, we better start tracking them on foot, otherwise, we're not going to catch up with them." So fine, we did that. Now I'm I'm carrying a heavy movie camera. With, with film and it's powered by a wet cell battery. So I had one of the guys uh, who was one of the trackers who, who was my battery assistant. He would carry the battery slung over his shoulder. I would carry the camera. I mean, it's it's monstrously heavy stuff. Uh, and so we, off we go trekking into the wild blue, you know, yonders of nowhere in pursuit of this herd of elephants. And that night we still hadn't caught up with them. And now we're on foot. We've got no water. We've got no food. You know, it was quite an extraordinary, scary experience. And as the sun went down, Wally said, well, we got to sleep here in the bush tonight. And tomorrow morning, we'll, 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 we'll find their spoor, you know, their footprints, and we'll keep tracking. Uh, so we, uh, that's what we did. And in the middle of the night, uh, this white hunter says, do not move, whispering to us. Do not move. Do not breathe because we are surrounded by the elephant herd. They have come back to us. It's almost as though they knew we were after them and they had surrounded us. It was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life because you could hear the rumbling of their their, their heartbeat. You could hear the swishing of the ears. Uh, and they, they do make a sort of low-pitched rumble, particularly the, the adults, the elephants. Mm-hmm. It was really very, very scary. But for some strange reason, I uh, felt that you know our lives... Could have easily been in danger they could have trampled us to death but they didn't they kept their distance and every now and again there was a glint of an eye that you could see you know in the dark and as the uh, night wore off and dawn started to come they left us they 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 disappeared into the bush and by the time the sun came up Wally said you know those elephants knew we were here last night um they were warning us to stay away they were They were basically, and I know elephants, and I know wildlife, he said. These elephants were sending us a message as if to say, leave us alone. I believed what he said. The the rest the hunters thought, you know, it's talking nonsense. Uh, And the guy whose turn it was to shoot the elephant was absolutely adamant. No, he's got to get his elephant today. Uh, So off we go in pursuit of the herd. And eventually we do um, find a herd. Um, I'm not sure if it was the same herd or a, a different group, but Wally, who was the main white hunter, he picked off an, an old bull who was standing to the side of the herd and he said to the hunter, he said, that guy, that's that's, that's, that's the bull that you've, that's, that's he's yours. But don't miss and wait until he turns towards you and you got to shoot him right here between the eyes. That's the only way to really get a good kill. Um, so I positioned myself right behind, I'm not going to use names because I don't want to identify people, but he may well still be around. I'm talking about a long time ago, this is 1967. But he positioned himself in front of me with his rifle and his high-powered telescopic sight. And behind me was Wally, the white hunter. And I'm here and the guy with the battery next to me and um, I'm set up behind him and he aims at the bull and Wally from the back says, now don't miss, you know, hit him in the forehead right between the eyes. And at the appropriate moment, I, in front of him, he shoots, bam! And I thought, you know, this is a great shot to get because I'm right behind him. And as he sh- as he shot, the idea was that the elephant would drop dead in the background. And you know, it's it's a shot of this man, you know, being master and of of of, of you know being um, you know a hunter who got his kill. Um, but he missed, and so the entire herd panicked. And as they, as they separated from one another, clouds of dust, the thundering sound uh, as they ran, in the middle of the group was a single female with a baby. And she looked at the, the, the man who had shot, the American. She looked at him, and she started to charge. And I'm right behind him, and I'm still filming. And she started to charge him because she felt that her baby was in danger. She knew perfectly well what guns were all about because they were used to hunters being there. You know, they knew what guns meant. And so she started to charge him. And in my viewfinder, I will never ever forget it. I'm seeing this this animal charging towards him, getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the frame all the time. He eventually ran out of the frame and I'm stuck there with this heavy camera and this guy next to me still holding the battery saying, let's go, let's go, let's go in Portuguese. I couldn't move. Um, And when she was about six to eight feet away from me, I heard a rifle shot from behind me. Wally had shot her right between the eyes. And she collapsed, Uh, her, her front legs folded and she stared at me like this. And at that moment, an amazing thing happened because I felt a connection with that elephant. I felt as though she knew I was not the one who pulled the trigger and she held me in her gaze as she slowly crumpled and fell on her side and died. She held me in her gaze until that last moment, until she breathed her last, and her eyes glazed over and she was dead. And I had the most unbelievable, overwhelming feeling that the spirit of that animal had somehow connected with mine. We had joined. We made a connection. I wasn't going to say anything. And and that night... um, at, back at, at camp, we eventually went back to the to the vehicles, got back to camp, you know, martinis were flowing and all the rest of it. And I was trying to process this. Um, and about halfway through the night, while we were all drinking away, and I suddenly thought, oh my God, I could have been killed today. That elephant could easily have trampled me to death. It didn't happen. And then I remembered what this woman had told me. Be fair of beware of the great beast because it might kill you. Yeah. Now I didn't think that that was coincidental at all. She had foreseen this, and I'll tell you something even more amazing. Um, I write about this. That every time I consulted a, a sangoma and uh, and they read the bones for me
0: after that incident,
1: in, yes. After after that incident, many many years to come and on many occasions, they would always say to me. What is the spirit of the Ndlovu? Ndlovu is the Zulu word for elephant. What is the spirit of this Ndlovu that we are seeing with you? So I believe that that the, the spirit of that poor animal and I have basically gone through life together, that she has been almost like, her spirit has almost been like a guardian angel to me um, ever since that a horrible day. Because every single Sangoma has seen it in the bones and you know, they well, say that, ancestors-
0: that, that consistency is really remarkable. Right. And I mean, the fact that it gets mentioned at all is remarkable, but then it's get mentioned over and over, um, yeah. really suggests, uh, quite clearly that those people are seeing. Oh yeah. A reality yeah. As, as real to them as, um, you are as real,
1: as real, as real as this desk I'm sitting at. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you I was know, curious
0: um, whether, I was curious whether, and you know, now you've mentioned, you know, your, your vivid dreams. I was curious whether you ever had any experiences yourself with this elephant, any sense of the presence, any impressions, any dreams, anything like that. I, uh,
1: if you could see my office i have elephants everywhere on every nook and cranny in on my bookshelves all around me here there are elephants in every shape and form made of all sorts of substances except from 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 skin i don't have anything to do with nothing no leather but you know wood uh, uh, uh marble stone mud whatever you know i have elephants everywhere i've even got a little elephant hanging from my rearview mirror in my car i and I wear a, a an, an, an elephant um little amulet around my neck often because I know that that elephant and I are together to this day and it's just a physical manifestation of my awareness of her presence she's around me, you know, and i've been through so many um other events where my life has been threatened and been in danger and then As I write in the book, I was eventually diagnosed uh, many, many years later with a very, very severe kidney disease. And I think that even through that, you know, she has, the spirit of this elephant has helped me through those really, really difficult times. Um, You know, and I'll give one more example, which I think folks might find this quite interesting. Um, One of the other things that she said to me was, he's going to go to this world where there's no color, it's all white. It always puzzled me what that might have meant. And of course, I put it out of my mind. Until 1991, when I was doing a, uh, a scientific uh, documentary called Secrets from a Frozen World right. in, in Antarctica. Um, and it was Christmas. And we were right down in, in the southern hemisphere at Antarctica. Um, the, the southern, uh, the, the, the southern uh, hemisphere in, in, in December uh, the sun does not set in the Antarctic because it's so far south. There's maybe an hour of twilight time. But other than that, it's daylight all the time. So it was Christmas Day, and we were on a uh, an American vessel that was crewed by a Norwegian crew. And we had uh, a bunch of American scientists on board, and we were doing research, into the ocean, cruel populations, the ecosystem down in the Antarctic, doing sediment core sampling, sampling ice cores to see if there was any change in atmospheric bubbles in the ice in order to determine is there a CO2 increase in the atmosphere, all sorts of, you know, sexy scientific stuff. So scientific showed what the series was called, um, the, the infinite voyage. It was a wonderful series for the public broadcasting system here in the U.S. and, um, and uh, it was Christmas Day, and what the, what the captain of the ship had done was to feather the props of the ship. Now, you, you don't stop the propellers, because if you do, you might get locked in the ice. So you keep the props running, but you feather them so that there's no bite, that so the ship remains stationary, but the props are still spinning, so that if you do want to move, you just turn the, the blades in such a way that you then get momentum again. So um, we had stopped, must have been around about one, one o'clock in the morning, so it was twilight-ish time, but not dark. And everybody was partying on board the ship and I went up to the, to the deck outside. It was quite cold. Um, it was a little penguin that was running uh, around the ship and squawking and carrying, carrying on. And I was watching it and I was making notes. I always keep notes of everything. And at the end of the day, I keep, now I was keeping notes even that day, Christmas Eve, after a lot of, you know, nice, um, um, various types of alcohol and whatever else I was making, keeping my notes. And, um, I looked around and I was the only one on deck. Now the ship had a red hole and the superstructure was white. Um, that was the only color, uh, the, the red hole. I looked around me and I thought, wow, oh, you know, this, this world is quite amazing. We were in the middle of the pack ice. The ice was covering the ocean. So it was completely frozen. It was hard ice around us from horizon to horizon. And you couldn't see where the horizon ended and where the sky began, because it was all the same color. It was all white. Everything was white. And it hit me again, you know, she foresaw this. This is the white world with no color that that lady, that old woman in that mud hut in Central Africa had seen. That's not coincidental either. She had foreseen this. And, you know, it was just, again, another substantiation of and proof of her incredible capabilities. Absolutely. Uh, to look through time, you know, um, just amazing.
0: And I think, look, I think it would be good to say, tell one more story. And that is, and that is that connection with the man who was, you know, this close to, it, to, England. yes,
1: yes. So that for me also was quite remarkable. Um, I did in, it was we fast forward now to 1983, and I was doing a series of documentary films on the history of South African airways. South African Airways was a very fine airline during its time. It was state-owned, owned owned by the government. And because of the uh, anti-apartheid policies of the whole world, rightly so, you know, there was a lot of anti-South African sentiment throughout the world. And the the government and the airline felt that it it would do the country, you know, it it was important to have a presence around the world so that at least you keep trade links alive and at least you could have people going in and out to, to connect the country with the world. Um, and it was a very, very efficient airline. I wouldn't call it a machine of the apartheid uh, um, government, the, 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 the uh, part of the mechanism of the apartheid machinery, because that's really not what it was about. These were, these, were, these were professional pilots and people who ran an efficient airline. It was amazing. And in fact, it's the topic of, of a book that I have coming out in July uh, this year, right. uh, only because I think it's such an extraordinary story and how they pioneered flight throughout Africa and then connected Africa with the rest of the world. It was an amazing story. So I'm doing this, this, this documentary series on the history of the airline. And one of the things that we had found out uh, during the course of our research was that the airline was originally founded in 1929, where it was privately owned by a man called Alistair Miller. And it, eventually he ran out of money. And so in 1934, the airline was taken over by the government. He just needed a bailout, uh, keep the airline going his airline was called union airways named after the union of south africa which is what it was called after the end of the boer war um all the provinces united became the union of south africa so that was union airways and in 1934 the government took it over and the government said we're going to change the name of the airline to south african airways so that's when it got its name um and um during our research We found that in 19—just after the government took it over, uh, three—actually, there was a total of seven, but initially three—brand-new aircraft were ordered from a a company in Germany. Now, Germany, there was a company in Germany called the Junkers Company. I think it was based in Bremen, but I might be wrong. Uh, they made a very, very fine airliner that that sat, that accommodated fourteen passengers, it had an engine in the nose and then one on each wing. It looked very similar to a Ford Trimotor, if anybody knows anything about you know early airliners and if you 've got any aviation people watching, <laughs> wonderful aircraft, super efficient and um, now so they ordered these airplanes. so now, how do you fly an aircraft that only has a limited range of about a thousand miles all the way from Germany, down the whole of Africa to South Africa, there's no radio beacons, there are no communications along the way, no weather forecasts along the way, very few airports, no uh, alternative airfields to land at if there's trouble. And then also, how do you get fuel? So it was a huge operation to get these aircraft delivered to South Africa from the factory in Germany. The aircraft, by the way, was called the Ju-52, the ju ju52 that they called it, and uh, they were absolutely amazing uh, planes, uh, highly durable, uh, extremely uh, well-made, and um, they were going to save the airline and would allow the airline to expand in South Africa, which is why they ordered these planes. So... During the course of the research, we found out that one of the pilots who were, flew one of those delivery flights was still alive and living in Germany. And I said, "God, we have to interview this guy." And it turned out he was like 89 or something like that, but still had all these marvels about him. He was quite compassentous. He could talk and you know, you know, communicate. And I th- we have to interview this man. So the airline arranged with the Uh, office of South African Airways in Frankfurt, which used to be the the, uh, head office of South African Airways in Germany, to please make suitable inquiries and see if this man would be open to an interview, and could we do an interview. And they got some help from the foreign office, the German foreign office. Those days, the foreign office was still based in Bonn. This is before the unification of East and West Germany, so it wasn't Berlin, it was Bonn. And um, the foreign office, they they, uh, facilitated the meeting. And uh, I was very excited about this, to talk to this guy who had flown down darkest Africa in the early 30s on this delivery flight. And not only that, but he was a home movie fanatic. He, he He had a little camera that shot 16 millimeter film and he did a film on the delivery flight. And I thought, God, if I could find that footage, imagine that and use that in the documentary as well to illustrate his interview. And it turned out that there was a copy of this film in a lab in Frankfurt.
0: It's pretty remarkable. Well, that whole story is pretty remarkable. I mean, there's, there's many instances in your story where I feel <laughs> you were receiving a lot of guidance and synchronicity yeah. <laughs> on your side, right? And that's definitely one of
1: it's, them. It's true. It's true. You know, go figure. I mean, do I understand it? No, but it's absolutely true what you say. Anyway, um, my crew and I, we eventually arrive in Frankfurt and um, um, we've got still photographers with us. We've got a, public relations people with us and we film in Frankfurt at the head office of South African Airways. I go to the lab, we find the film, we select the footage that we want, they make a copy for us uh, and now it's time to go and interview this, this guy whose name was Hans Barr, B-A-U-R, Capitan Hans Barr. And it turns out that uh, he lived in a little town called Amersy, in Bavaria, not far from Munich. So, of course, the, with Germany having those incredible autobahns, it's very easy to get from Frankfurt to Munich in just a few hours. You know, no speed limit. Down we went, you know, to, from Frankfurt to Munich to go and interview Kapitan Hans Baer. And with us was uh, a, a guy from, from we, we called him the man from Bonn. Uh, almost like a, an espionage <laughs> title yeah. for, a, for a character, the man from Bonn was with us, and he was going to act as my uh, interpreter for the interview because Hans Bauer spoke no English, but it was nice, and we felt as though the German government were making things as as you know as as, as, as uh, efficient as possible for us to talk to this legend of a man who had done this and um, the night before we do the interview, we stayed at a little tiny hotel in Amachi Amachi is a very, very small town, very picturesque. And we were at the hotel and the man from Bonn and I were talking away and the, you know, public relations people were there, members of SAA, the airline were there and whatever else. But the man from Bonn uh, spoke w- wonderful English. And uh, he says to me, after we'd had a lot of very good Rhine wine and, you know, good German Schliverwitz and Kirschwasser and whatever else. And he said, uh, you know, how much do you really know about uh, Kapitän Bahr? I said, well, you know, other than the fact that he flew that delivery flight, what, what else is there to know? And he said, well, you know, he had war service. I said, well, sure, yeah. he must have had war service. You know, the, this flight took place in 1934. He must have uh, been a pilot during, in the Luftwaffe. Um, but that's not what I want to ask him about. It's not about that. It's about the delivery flight through down Africa. And he said, I want you to please do not discuss the war with him. I said, no, no I have no intention. Why would I? It's got, it's got nothing to do with the story that we're telling. But he seemed to be very concerned, and I wasn't quite sure why. And then, after a little while, he said, you know, he has war injuries. So I thought, oh, he doesn't want me to, you know, dig up anything that may be hurtful to his memories or whatever else. But I respected that. And I said, no, no, I won't discuss the war. I promise I won't. Apparently, he was a prisoner of war of the Russians. He was sent to a gulag for a very long, long time, about 15 years before he was finally released with the facility of the French government. And some more wine flows, and then the man from Bonn leans even closer to me, and he says, (laughs) but how much do you really know about his background? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I forget his name. I think his name is Richard. I said, what is it that you're driving at? He says, you know that he was Adolf Hitler's personal pilot. And when I heard that, I thought, I instantly sobered up. I mean, there wasn't the cloudy vision that I was having. I thought, oh really, wow, it's not very often that you meet someone like that. How am I going to deal with that? Because this is a big deal. Uh, He was a major figure, um, historical figure, if that was the case. But I wasn't going to touch upon the subject at all. But anyway, I didn't sleep very much that night because I thought, well, you know, Here's a guy who knew who knew Adolf Hitler pretty well. He must have known him, and yet I'm not even allowed to ask about that. It's okay. It's fine. All we'll deal with is the delivery flight. So we get to his house the next day, and we welcomed into his home by his third wife, and you know she invites us in. No English is spoken, uh, but fortunately I had my translator. And then eventually this little old man comes down the staircase from upstairs on a with a stick, and he had a gummy leg. Now, I was told that he had a war injury, and I thought, oh, that must be the war injury. Maybe, you know, maybe he was injured as a pilot. I didn't ask any questions. Um, And he said, we met, and I shook his hand. And you know, when I shook his hand, it hit me that I am only one handshake away from Adolf Hitler. Not many people can say that. Uh, I'm that close to a man who was responsible for the death of millions and millions of people during World War II, who basically changed the course of history and brought a very dark period into European history and changed the course of the world. I'm one handshake away from that guy when I shook his hand. I thought, that's quite something. What are you going to do with this memory? Put it out of my mind. He's as charming and as sweet as ever, this man. We sit him down, we put a microphone on his lapel, we light the scene, You know, we do the interview, it goes extremely well tells us all about the flight down through Africa and, you know, eventually arriving in Johannesburg and how wonderful everybody was to him when the, the, these brand new airplanes arrived was an amazing story. And then when the interview was over, I said, "Dunker, you know, thank you so much for your, for the interview and for being so grateful and all the rest of it. And he claps his hand and he says to his wife, bring the schnapps time for a drink. So while the rest of the crew are packing up the lights and, you know, winding up the cables, he takes me around the corner and around the corner uh, uh, the, the the, the living room was, there was a sort of little alcove and on the wall was a picture of, of him with Hitler standing in front of a Ju 52, which is one of the exact type of aircraft that he flew to South Africa. And he says, "Das ist man, das ist uh, uh, i in you and that, that is a Ju 52. He didn't mention Hitler's name. And I said, yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. I said, amazing. And he asks me in German, now I was coming from South Africa and ha- being able to speak Afrikaans, which we all had to learn at school, I can get by in German. And besides, I had worked on a German television series in Johannesburg uh, many, many years right. earlier for yeah. Schweizer's Deutsches Fernsehen, the second German channel. So I had a little bit of knowledge of German, but I'm not fluent, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. And so he says to me in German, he said, do you want to know uh, more about this? And, uh, you know, asking me about the picture. And I said, yeah, bitte. Yes, please. And the man from Bonn overheard this conversation <laughs> and he was mortified. <laughs> I thought the guy was going to freak out. Anyway, he goes like this, but uh, Kapitän Ba says to me, come sit here, sit here next to me and we go and sit on a couch and he calls his wife to bring the photograph albums. And he brings out the photograph albums, and the albums are pictures of him and Adolf Hitler and every single member of the inner ranks of the Third Reich, filled from page to page, you know, him and Hitler and everybody who was uh, Hitler's age and, you know, all, all of the, the major players, Googles and whatever else, in the photograph album. And he's telling me all about this, and he goes to the very first album, and he shows me his wedding to his first wife, and he says, and "Over there, that's Adolf Hitler over there, because he, he gave me my wedding party, and we were friends ever since he gave me my first wedding party for my first wedding." Yeah. That's how close they were. Now, as before, you, were,
0: this was in the before the war. This was in the early thirties, right? In the
1: earlier. This part is in of, the, uh, when on. he was campaigning to become chancellor. Yeah. Yes, uh, and. And that's when he was chosen by, uh, I think it was the, uh, um, I, I, I guess the, the, the National Socialist Party chose him to be Hitler's personal pilot. And he was recruited from Lufthansa, which those days had two names, Lufthansa, which is today Lufthansa, the German airline. And uh, so because of his record as a very, very accomplished pilot, Hitler was very, very scared of flying. He didn't fancy the idea at all. But if Hans Bauer was the pilot, he was fine. And he told me about flying him around for his campaign to become chancellor. And then when the war began, how he flew Hitler around here, there, and everywhere. And he shows me pictures of him with Hitler and you know, having lunch, a state dinner with Mussolini, and all sorts of other people. And always in the background is this man, Hans Bauer. That's how close he and Hitler were. And he says, Hitler and I, he... He confided in me because he trusted absolutely nobody. And it goes as far as he's telling me in the very last night of Hitler's life, he says to me, and you know, speaking German, and this, this, this guy from Bonn now is translating all of this for me. Um, but I, I didn't record it. And none of this was recorded. That, but I, I um, um, had the tape in German, uh, which I had translated later. And he tells me that he was actually with Hitler in the bunker in Berlin the night Hitler said to him, the war is over. It's all done. I'm finished. The Reich must go on. The only way for the Reich to go on is I must take my life tonight, and you have to uh, leave. And uh, he he had to fly. I forget who it was, but one of one of Hitler's aides, but Bormann, he said, I think you said Bormann. Yes, Bormann. Bormann. Yes, he says uh, you, Bormann. You take Bormann and you fly him. Take him anywhere, <laughs> South America, an Arab country, anywhere, in order to preserve the Reich. So. You know, Hans Bauer says to him, but, you know, Mein Führer, you know, I will, f- I will fly you out. And Hitler says, no, it's too late. It's done. It's finished. Uh, the war is, the war for me is over. I'm, I'm going to end it tonight. So he basically told Hans Bauer that he was going to take his life. He didn't say what or how. He said, Eva and I tonight are going to end our lives in this bunker. You leave us. And he gave him a painting, uh, one of his favorite paintings. He f- took it out of the frame, rolled it up, gave it to Hans Bauer which was put into a nap- backpack and Hans Baer went running through the streets with Berman and a couple of other people and as they were trying to escape from the uh, the bunker the Russians were invading berlin and he got shot in the knee and that's how he had the, the bad leg the Russians arrested him the Russians were convinced that he knew that what had happened to hitler and that he and that and that hitler was not dead and that he was the only man who may have known what had happened to hitler and he said i you know he told me he was going to take his life tonight, but the Russians didn't believe him. So they arrested him. He went to a gulag for 15 years. He had a horrible experience. And um, eventually they amputated his leg. Um, And he tells me all of this. And at the end of the day, it was twilight time where we finally ended the day. Um, And, you know, it was only when we were driving away from his house, we had two uh, VW combis, as they like like, vans. Um, And, and I, I looked back and he and his wife, Senta, were standing outside their, their little house waving to us. It was just like an old you know, couple saying goodbye to their guests uh, and receding into the distance as we drove away. And at that moment, I suddenly remembered, oh my God, that's what that woman had told me in Zambia. Again, in a mud hut in Central Africa, you will meet a man who was that close to the most evil man who ever lived, she foresaw this. How did she do that? You know, it 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 was it it was extraordinary to be suddenly aware of this fact. And I was that close to this guy. I've told many people the story, and very people, very few believe me. They say, oh, that's all you know bollocks. That's not true. Couldn't possibly have happened. It is, and I have photographs. He signed. He's got a there's a picture of him and Adolf Hitler, which he signed to me. Very, very politely, and he described his his autobiography in German. It is to to me, yeah. so I have all of that. The images of that in the book, you know. Again, it's not about that guy and about that particular event, but about the fact that this little old lady, living in the middle of nowhere, foresaw this event, is what is so extraordinary.
0: Well, it's one of those one of those. Uh small private experiences in a sense for you right of which there are millions millions of us have these kinds of experiences that show us that there is more to life than uh, for most of us meets the eye right there is those aspects that transcend time and space and um the physical dimension
1: you know i think if i've learned anything um from all of my experiences uh, and, and 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 some of them are are in the pages of the of the book um is that is that the world and the universe is a is a far more what is what is the line from from alice in wonderland things are getting curiouser and curiouser well it's true um life does get curiouser and curiouser it is an extraordinarily amazing place we live in an amazing world and uh we really have no idea what we are capable of what's what's out there. Uh, you know, whether it's life after death or whether it's contact with aliens, I've even photographed, I photographed a UFO in Canada and I'm not sure if that story is in the book, but you know, um, are we in contact with alien presences? Yes, I certainly think we are. And, you know, now that we know that there are like something like 4,500 exoplanets that have been discovered by only one telescope alone we can't possibly be alone in the universe. There have to be more of us, but can we make contact with them? And are we making contact with them? Um, what is consciousness all about? What do we learn from all these these amazing experiences? I have learned more from people who live under thorn trees in the bush than I have from some of the smartest engineers and professors that I've interviewed and met, you know, during the course of, you know, 50 years of making documentary films. And I've met, I've met some extraordinary people. One of the most amazing films I ever made was the story of the Voyager spacecraft mission from Earth that went to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And again, it just widens one's vision, how little we know as, you, as, as the universe unfolds and as we peel away you know, these layers, uh, layers and layers and layers, and discover so much more about what's out there and what we're capable of doing and being and who we are. You know, It humbles one and it gives you a profound respect for the possibilities of what life is all about. You know, I end my book by, uh, by saying the very last page, you know, I, I summarize it by saying I think, I think we're all connected by some sort of invisible field, uh, if you like. Uh, call it a grid, call it whatever you like. I, I, the, the analogy I use is the bumper cars at the fairground. You know, everybody driving around these bumper cars and the little things sticking up at the end, touching this yeah. chicken wire at the top, getting the power. I think that that chicken wire concept, um, the idea of that, there there really is something like that we're we're all connected to that and as i i think the words i use whether whether you're a person or a petunia or a pon- pony we're all connected to that grid and there is still so much more to discover and know and even though you know as things get pretty grim you know now that we're dealing with an international pandemic with covid and uh politics has taken a very dark turn around the world and all that. There's always hope for optimism because there's still so very much more out there. We're capable of being and rising to levels that we can't even begin to imagine. I mean, it's really, it's it's very, very exciting.
0: Yeah, Lionel. And I think that's really a, a beautiful place to end because there are so many other angles um, we could pursue. Your book is incredibly rich. It is very inspiring. I think the, 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 just really what you just described, you know, the many, the many richnesses of life that you were able to connect with and explore and really go in depth with in this lifetime is incredible. And it really opens a lot of horizons. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I I'm, feel privileged to be able to share it with people. I just want people to, I wanted to share it with, with, with others. You know, I, I felt that there was, I've been so blessed I don't want to sound boastful in any way. Really, that's not what it's about. I just wanted to share it with the world. And I hope that folks get some benefit out of reading this. You know, um, w- w- Life's amazing. And so thank you so much for having me on your show to talk about it. I do appreciate it.
0: I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it? The tune seeing us out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.